Uh, good morning. My name's Kevin. I'm uh, one of the pastors here at Cornerstone. I'll invite you to take a copy of the scripture and to turn to Luke and the 24th chapter. If you're using one of the red Bibles, that's on page 749. Hope you're feeling better than I am today. My family and I did the rank and run yesterday. So, you know, I just crushed a 5K. And I'm feeling it today. I, uh, I play softball on, uh, on Wednesday night. I, I, I hit a home run. Yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> and, uh, and Jay Berg wondered if, as I was rounding second if I'd make it home. It's, and uh, so then on Saturday, I went and crushed a 5K with my five-year-old. Though, truth be told, his finishing kick crushed mine. So anyhow, I'm feeling it today. I'm going to not wander, probably. And we're going to read the scripture about... This love that's vast as the ocean. And uh, it's my, uh, my privilege this morning to open that text, this great text of Jesus meeting two of his disciples on the Emmaus Road uh, for us this morning as part of our Meals with Jesus series. So Luke chapter 24, beginning at verse 13. Now the same day, two of them, that's the Easter Sunday, were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what's more... It's the third day since all this took place. And in addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see. He said to them, How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he was, was, were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread. And gave thanks and broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it's true. The Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them 
when he broke the bread. This is God's word. We are living in a world of disappointment. We're living in a world filled with grief and sadness. A world where our hopes are often dashed. A world of confusion where God sometimes seems absent. And in those moments of confusion and disappointment, in those moments where our hopes seem all but gone, it is so tempting, so easy it seems to walk away from Jesus. To consider leaving it all alone. To leaving him behind. When was it for you? What is it for you? What tempts you to despair? When were your hopes all but gone? When was your heart filled with such grief or disappointment, such confusion that you wondered, is this, is this thing, is, is this even all true? I've shared times of, in my own life where feeling all alone, feeling like God is absent, feeling and wondering and questioning, is the gospel still the power of God? Two of Jesus' disciples are leaving town three days after their rabbi, their master, was crucified on a Roman cross. He had told them to stay in Jerusalem. He had told them to wait there in the holy city because he would rise again on the third day. But these disciples are leaving town. Their hopes are crushed. They're disappointed. They're confused. Jesus greets them with a question. I love that, that Jesus doesn't greet them on the way with a grand pronouncement of his resurrection. He greets them with a question. In fact, he greets them with two questions. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? What's on your heart? What things are you talking about? He gives them space to share their story. He's not afraid of their pain. Neither should we be. And they say... Our hopes are dashed. We had hoped. We had put our hopes in this, in this teacher. We had put our hopes in this Jesus that he would be the one who was going to redeem Israel. He, we thought he was the one who was going to free us from our captors. He was going to be the one to set us free from those who enslaved us and oppressed us. We had put our hope in him. And those hopes seemed all but dashed. What have you hoped in? I had hoped our family would stick together. I had hoped this pastor would fix our church. I had hoped Obama would bring about racial reconciliation. I had hoped Trump would lead us into prosperity. I put my hopes in the conservatives or the liberals or the greens or the NDPs. I had hoped that this would be the time I could finally kick this habit. I had hoped that we could have a baby. I had hoped for a wonderful marriage. Where have your hopes been crushed, leaving you in confusion? See, when we're disappointed and confused, we are tempted to leave town. 
Tim Chester in his uh, great little book called The Meal with Jesus, um, and he's talking about this passage, refers to two different paintings of the scene. The first uh, painting, and, and it's up here on the screen, is uh, the painting called The Kitchen Maid, or La Mulata, by Diego Velasquez. It's a front and center in the, in the scene is the maid, the kitchen maid, who is coming to an astonished realization of who she has just fed. In the background is Jesus. He's the one in the, on the far left with the circle around his head. It's hard to see there. And in fact, um, this painting, as it was sold in one of its in times, someone had actually edited this painting and painted over the, um, the, the part there in the, in the upper left with Jesus and his disciples. And it just kind of blended that into the wall. And they actually believed that the painting was cut. The other disciple was cut off. It was um, kind of altered. And, uh, and what, it wasn't until one of the restorations, as this was sold to a new owner in Chicago, and they began to restore, they realized that the paint in the upper left was, was different, and they, and they actually cleaned it and washed it, revealing the, the scene. Which seems um, like our society, right? That wants to edit out any mention of Jesus that wants to uh, uh, take out any uh, thought of the possibility of anything supernatural or divine. That, that public discourse is not, um, does not include issues of faith. We want to edit out the transcendent. We want to remove any notions of transcendency from our thinking, from our minds. And so all we're left with in the forefront is a rag. All we're left with is a servant, a slave, very likely. We live in the already but the not yet. Jesus has already risen from the dead. He's already ushering in his kingdom, but he's not yet ushered in his kingdom. He's not fully come in power. We live between Good Friday and Easter. For these disciples in this times of, of despair and confusion and hopes, but hopes are being dashed. And we had thought, we had hoped that this is the way, and I'm not sure right now. I've got these doubts. Colossians 3, Paul talks about that your life is hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears you will also appear with him in glory. But right now, he has not yet appeared. He's not, he, he seems like the hidden Christ. He seems like he's been painted over. He seems like our eyes have not yet been opened. We're still confused. We still lose hope. We still are tempted to leave town. Our disappointments are real. We're not sure we can handle any more ridicule for our faith. And yet our calling as a church is to make the invisible God visible. Our calling as a church is to make the real Jesus non-ignorable in Niagara and far beyond. How do we do that? How can we make the invisible God visible? How can we make the real Jesus non-ignorable? Make him pressing and compelling in our day and in our time? Well, two thoughts from, the, from this passage of Scripture. The, the first is that the real Jesus is revealed through his word. The real Jesus is revealed through his word. 
We live in this post-Christian society where uh, God and his word is not taken seriously, and yet we are called not to despair. As Jesus meets these discouraged and confused disciples on the road, he doesn't come with, it's interesting, he doesn't come with um, a display of his power or even a revelation of, hey, look, I'm really Jesus alive from the dead. He comes and conducts a Bible study. That might seem surprising to us. He, he, he exposits the scripture. He opens the scriptures and, it, and they say that it made their hearts burn. That as the scriptures were open to them, as he taught them the scriptures, their hearts burned within them. This is true. This is real. They became convinced. You see, their hopes uh, were dashed because Jesus had died and a dead Messiah cannot, be, cannot save anyone, they had thought. But Jesus opens the scriptures and say the scriptures say the, the Messiah must suffer and die. They thought the cross proved that Jesus could not be the Messiah. And Jesus shows them the scripture proves that the, that the cross proves that he is. You know, and the gospel of Luke is, is full of, of this teaching that the scriptures are sufficient. The scriptures are sufficient for us. They're a sufficient revelation of who God is and who Jesus is. Jesus tells a parable in Luke chapter 16 of um, a rich man and a, and a poor man named Lazarus. And, and they, um, they, they both die and, and, and the poor man uh, is in heaven and the rich man is in hell. And, and uh, the rich man is pleading saying, would you send Lazarus back to my brothers and warn them so that they don't come into this horrible torment that I am in right now. Send this man back from the dead and convince my brothers to repent and to, to live a, a holy and righteous life. What does God say to him? He says, they have Moses and the prophets. They have the scripture. If they won't believe the scripture, they won't believe even if someone comes back from the dead to tell them. They have the scriptures. The scriptures are enough. How do we make Jesus non-ignorable in Niagara? We, We must open the word of God. This series this year, as teachers, as leaders, shepherds at Cornerstone, we've been encouraging us to be a people marked by hospitality. We think it's crucial. We think it's critical. We think it's strategic in a post-Christian society for the people of God to be marked by a radical welcoming of the stranger, welcoming of others. To love others who believe differently than we do, who live differently than we do. To show them a radical kind of love. The kind of love that Jesus says of loving your enemies. Of loving those who persecute you. Loving those who disregard you. Loving those who ridicule you. Loving those who are disinterested in the things that are most precious to you. How do we make Jesus non-ignorable? Friends, it must include his word. In Luke chapter 10, um, we have the account of Mary and Martha, two sisters who happen to have a brother named Lazarus. Um, not the Lazarus from the parable, however. They, these two sisters were, had welcomed Jesus into their home. Martha was busy about preparing a meal and preparing the table and, and, and busy about all the cares of hospitality where, while Mary sat at Jesus' feet and, and Mar- listening to his teaching. And Martha says, Jesus, won't you rebuke Mary for being so lazy? And, and Jesus says, you know what, Martha, 
You're busy about many things, but one thing is necessary. You know, you're busy attending to yourself as the host. Mary's busy attending to me as the guest. She is, she's taking in my word. She's taking in my teaching. And friends, if we're going to be a, a people of hospitality, that hospitality cannot be divorced from the scripture, cannot be divorced from uh, spiritual formation of us as his people. You know, the call, the, the call that we're, we're giving to us as a people to open our homes, to open the doors of our community to, to those who are different, to love the stranger well, is meaningless if we are not a people formed by the word of God. If we're not a people of virtue. If we're not a people of wisdom. And those, those virtues of, of love and compassion and hospitality, and, and the, all of those virtues of wisdom, cannot they, they, they don't happen by accident. They happen through habits. They happen through the, the formational habits of daily intaking the Scripture, intaking the Word of God. They happen through private and corporate prayer. They happen through the habits of private and corporate worship. That's through the habits uh, is how our character is formed, how our virtue is formed, how our wisdom is formed. Through, the, through, through community, through confessing our sins to one another, through fasting and prayer. You see, hospitality that's not marked by this intake of the Word of God to form us, to change us, to challenge us, to, to reawaken love within us. Hospitality that, that, that doesn't have um, that at the center is meaningless. That's a hospitality of accommodation where we just, you know, as a church, we just go hang out with the world and become just like the world. So as a people of hospitality, we want to avoid, you know, the work of fortification where, you know, the church withdraws from the world, polices its borders, and just withdraws. But we also don't want to be an accommodation, a work of accommodation where we just go hang out with the world and become and identify just with, be like, just like it. We want to be a people of invitation who are able to make the real Jesus non-ignorable through the compelling nature of the message of Jesus and the beauty of our lives that have been formed as we're in his presence, as we sit at his teaching, as we embrace his truth, as we confess our sin, as we humble ourselves. That's what makes the real Jesus non-ignorable. That's what's going to compel people to consider Jesus. And so Jesus is revealed through his word. And we must, as a church, must remain committed to the authority, to the inspiration, to the inerrancy of the scripture. The power of the gospel. Secondly, though, Jesus is revealed around the table. Jesus is revealed through his word, but he's also revealed around the table. Right? Their eyes were opened at the table because the scriptures were opened on the on the road, right? We can't divorce the two. It's not just that they got together, had a had a nice meal, and had too many glasses of wine, and oh yeah, you are Jesus. It, it wasn't some mystical experience at all like that. It was their eyes were opened around the table because their hearts were burning, and the scriptures were opened on the road. It's a both and. But their testimony is certainly as they went back to to Jerusalem. In verse 35, their testimony is that how he was recognized by them. He was made known to them, it says literally. He was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. That's their testimony. 
That as they broke bread together, as they were hosted by him, as they experienced friendship with him, that's when he made himself known. It's in community that Jesus is made known. If I'm totally honest and transparent with you, it's the Christian community that often wearies me the most. That often dashes my hopes and fills me with doubt, that winds me up, that spits me out, that drives me crazy. The chasing of fads, the consumerism of who's got the coolest thing going, running away from conflict, seeking to our own position, unhealthy fighting, gossip. The Christian community can be one of those sources of discouragement and disappointment and doubt and confusion. Is this thing even really true? Is the gospel still the power of God unto salvation? But, 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 there are moments of beauty where there's nothing like the local church operating as it should. should. There's moments of beauty where I see Jesus revealed through his people. You see Jesus revealed as some ladies work their tails off all day long baking meat buns to help a family in need. You see Jesus revealed as a people hungry gather at a prayer summit, hungry to know the presence of God, to seek his face together. We're doing that again tonight at 7 o'clock. We see Jesus revealed through his people as we sacrificial generosity of his people to help those in need around the world, to declare the gospel, to to rally together, to be the church. You see the beauty of Jesus revealed through his people and hearts burning for the word of God, confessing sins to one another, welcoming others, being family to one another. Yeah, the local church is far from perfect. And the local church may be one of those things that cause you to despair, fill you with disappointment and confusion. But friends, the local church, when it's working, is the revelation of Jesus. You see, we need a, we need a theology that undergirds this. We need a theology that, under, that, can, that can stand this revelation of Jesus through his word and around the table. And I've, I've been reflecting a lot about that, about a theology of hospitality this, this year, really. I'm not a theologian, at least not a professional one. But I've become convicted and convinced of a few things, a few convictions. And the first is that one of the fundamental revelations of who God is in the scripture is that God is a yearning host. He's a yearning host. He's a host that has this great desire to welcome, to gather us around his table, to be friends, to show his love to us. 
that I think that is actually one of the very fundamental revelations of who God is, is that he is a yearning host. The story of the scripture is a, is a story of return from exile. Of people who've been, who've been kicked out of the garden, who've, who, are, who are far from home, who are homeless. And God is the God of embrace, of welcoming back, of return from exile. And return to what? To, to the table. A return to the table. To table fellowship. To union. To being united again. God is a yearning host, fundamentally. Two, two visions of God that uh, the evangelical church and, and I have um, primarily depicted God actually, I think, stand in, in somewhat in opposition to this vision of God as a yearning host. The, the first is that God is a judge. This vision that God is primarily and fundamentally a judge, that, he, that God uh, looks at people and goes through a process of evaluation that will lead either to vindication or condemnation. And that's the, that's the, the vision that we, that we put forward of God to this world, is that he's a judge. He's primarily a judge. And you either have to be forgiven of your sins or you're going to be condemned for your sins. You say, well, that sounds, sounds really true, Kevin. Are you... Uh... I'm a little bit uh, uncomfortable where you're going theologically right now. God is a judge. He does reveal himself as a judge, but it's not primarily as a judge. It's not fundamentally as a judge. In fact, his judgment is against that which, which gets in the way of hospitality, of, ho- of his hosting. He judges most severely that which gets in the way of him being a host. Of religiosity, of self-righteousness of arrogance, of selfishness. He's, he is a judge. But he's not primarily a judge. He's primarily a yearning host. Second vision of God that we portray, and which is true, but we, when we make it pr- the fundamental of who God is, is that God is a healer. And we make God all about my personal transformation, leading almost to my perfection. He's, he's healing me of my hurts and my wounds and, my, um, and he's transforming me and he's, he's saving me out of my sin. And, and again, that's true. It's true. Don't, I'm not, don't, don't throw me in the heresy camp just yet. Um, he, is, he is doing those things, but it's for the purpose of preparing us for what? For the banquet. To be our host. He's not primarily, he's not fundamentally the healer. He is a healer, but it's in order to prepare us for the banquet, to prepare us for the feast, to prepare us to be ready to be his guests till he, till he, that's why he's perfecting us. God is fundamentally a yearning host. And why do I say that when we, um, show God primarily as a judge or primarily as a healer, that that actually undermines hospitality. Here's why. Because both of those things focus primarily on the self, on ourselves, what God can do for me. And when we're primarily focused on myself and what God can do for me, my heart is not attuned to the other. 
My heart is not looking out for the stranger. My heart is not looking out for the wanderer. My heart is not looking out for those who need a home, who need an embrace. But when we see that God is primarily, fundamentally, a yearning host that wraps up the self, that includes the forgiveness of our sin as a a judge, that includes the transformation as the healer, but it wraps up so much more than just those focus on the self. It includes ourselves, but it's so much more. It's about the community of God, and it's about God longing, not just to forgive our sins, but He wants to forgive our sins so that He can be a host to us, so that we can be united to Him. That's why He made us. Why did God make us? Well, the Scriptures reveal that God is a trinity, that God is this perfect relationship of love, of of invitation and response. All wrapped up in the image that He is three and that He is one, right? That, That Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all God, but they're not each other. And they're all this, they're all participating in this selfless dance of, of love, of, of showing each other love. So, so God, when He made the world, didn't make the world because He needed our, our, our love. He didn't make us because He needed relationship. He didn't have any need for love or relationship. He made us out of desire to give love, to give relationship, to give friendship. He made us out of desire to be a host to us. That's why he made us. God is a yearning host. Secondly, then, if God's a yearning host, the world is a desired guest. The world is his desired guest. Those who are far from him, those who are not yet around the table, who have not yet been adopted into his family, those are his desired guests. This world that, that, um, that has strayed far from him, this world that is not recognizing his rule and reign, this world is not primarily the object of his wrath and anger. It's primarily the object of his love and his desire. And his anger, his wrath is actually at that which gets in the way of hospitality, of him being the host to us. We were made for this. We were, made, we were fashioned for feasting at the table of the king. That's why he made us. To be united to him. And so if that's true, if God is a yearning host and the world is a desired guest, the church then is a gathering servant. The church exists to bring and invite others in around the table. Inviting this world into union with God, into, into participation with God. Jesus, we see this most beautifully shown in Jesus as he says, come, follow me, as he walks into a funeral and raises someone from the dead, as he walks into the home of people far from God and says, come on in, you're in the family. Now this requires wisdom and virtue, as I've mentioned, and it entails danger. I mentioned that Tim Chester references two paintings of this scene. The second painting is here at the Supper at Emmaus by Caravaggio. Isn't it a beautiful painting? And Chester points out this painting is all made, is, is, is the whole point of it is to draw you in. See the man on the left 
pulling his, his chair back. He's, he's astonished as he recognize who, recognizes who Jesus is, but as he's pulling back, he's creating room for you. Jesus is extending his hand in blessing, but also in invitation. The man on the, on the right, welcoming you in. Come on in. And do you see the teetering bowl of fruit on the edge of the table? Don't you just want to jump right in there and make sure it doesn't fall? That's what this supper is all about, is inviting you in, is pulling you in to what God is doing, to be a gathering, be part of the gathering servant, to be those who gather people from every tribe, tongue, nation, people who are far from God, people whose lives are messed up and broken, and gathering them around the table, inviting them, inviting them, not running away, not being just like them, but inviting them, inviting them. It brings us in as active participants, not passive observers, The story of the road to Emmaus calls us to involvement, to participation. You see, these two disciples, they meet Jesus and their lives change and their actions change, right? Instead of bedding down in the town of Emmaus, they get back on the road and do the exact thing that they urged Jesus not to do because it was so dangerous to travel at night. They get back and now they, they had, in the morning as they left Jerusalem, they had been followers of an executed traitor, fleeing arrest. But now they're returning as missionaries with great news and an invitation. So this morning, maybe your hopes are dashed. Maybe you're filled with confusion and disappointment. Maybe you're ready to give it all up. You're tempted to walk away from the community of faith. You're tempted to walk away from a life of faith in Jesus. This morning, hear the invitation of Jesus. Come to me. Come around my table. Gather around my table. Do you want to know me? Get into my word. I'm going to reveal myself to you through my word. Do you want to know me? I'm going to reveal myself around the table. Around table fellowship. So don't let church and the community of faith be something peripheral in your life. Don't allow the church to be peripheral in your life. If the church of Jesus is peripheral in your life, you will not experience the presence of Jesus, the revelation of Jesus to to calm our doubts. So see him in his word. See him around the table. If you're considering Jesus, we would invite you into that community to experience and to explore who Jesus is. We think the best way, the best place for you to examine and explore who Jesus is and what a life and following him entails is in, inside a community that takes him seriously. That takes his word seriously. That wants to go all in with him. And so we'd invite you in. We'd invite you into that to explore as to who Jesus is and all that he is doing in this world. And what he wants to do in your life and in our collective lives and in our region. And so would you pray with me? So Father in heaven, would you, as the yearning host, gather your desired guests today. We want to be your guests. Before we want to host others, Lord, we want to be guests at your table to receive the message and the love and the transforming grace that we need. 
Lord, we want to be a people who are formed by your word. By taking in your scripture, by private and corporate prayer, private private, private and corporate worship, and fasting, and community, and confessing our sins, so that we would love well. That we'd be formed as a people who have love. Be a people of truth, a people of grace. So call us in, Lord. Pull us in to the story that you're writing. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen.